Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the mysterious story of Roland T. Owen. But first, your true crime headlines. Five Chicago teenagers were charged with first-degree murder after their 14-year-old friend was shot and killed during an attempted burglary. Police say that the teens were attempting to break into a parked car in a suburban Chicago driveway when the 75-year-old homeowner noticed them. He stepped out onto his porch and yelled for the teens to stop. He told police that all of the teens ran to a waiting SUV except for one, who began to approach him. Fearing for his life, he fired at the teen, who was shot in the head and would later die from his injuries. The SUV sped away before police arrived at the scene, but the teens pulled over a short time later to ask for help from police officers investigating a nearby car accident. The injured 14-year-old and a 17-year-old got out of the car, and police officers called for an ambulance and began to administer first aid as the rest of the teens attempted to flee in the SUV. The ensuing pursuit lasted about 15 minutes and ended when the SUV ran out of gas. The occupants, ranging in age from 16 to 18, were all arrested, as was the 17-year-old who stayed with his dying friend. In the state of Illinois, a defendant can be held accountable for the death of a co-conspirator during the commission of a felony, even if they were not personally responsible. Because of this felony murder rule, the five surviving teenagers were charged with first-degree murder and are each being held on $1 million bail. If convicted, they could even face a sentence of between 20 years and life in prison. Philadelphia police attempting to serve a narcotics warrant at a home in North Philadelphia were met with gunfire, and an hours-long shootout ensued, with the gunman barricading himself inside the house. Two police officers were inside the home when the shooting began, and were trapped inside for a time before being safely evacuated. The shooter, identified by police as 36-year-old Maurice Hill, had a lengthy criminal history, including burglary, aggravated assault, and gun charges. He fired more than 100 rounds during the nearly eight-hour-long standoff, wounding six police officers. His eventual surrender was negotiated by Philadelphia attorney Shaka Johnson, who had previously represented Hill. Hill called him during the standoff, expressing concern that he might be killed if he tried to surrender. Johnson was able to facilitate a phone call between himself, Hill, the police commissioner, and the district attorney. They attempted to negotiate with Hill and convince him to surrender, but eventually had to use tear gas to force him out of the house. Charges have not yet been filed, but Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner told reporters that the suspect should not have been on the streets, given his extensive criminal record, but that he will face more than enough charges so that he never leaves jail again. The parents of the Dayton mass shooter who fired on a nightclub district August 4th, killing nine, including his own sibling, have apologized for the glowing obituary that was posted for their son. The obituaries for the shooter and his sister were posted on the website for Connor & Co. Life Celebration Home in Bellbrook, Ohio. While shorter than his sister's, the killer's obituary described him as a funny, articulate, and intelligent man with striking blue eyes and a kind smile. It made no mention of the horrific crime that preceded his death 
or the lives that he had taken. The obituary drew a striking contrast to the descriptions given by acquaintances of the shooter, who described a violent and troubled young man who was fascinated by guns. The backlash over the glowing tribute was swift, and the obituary was taken down the next day and replaced by an apology from the killer's parents. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Roland T. Owen. But first, a quick break. Are you tired of one-size-fits-all workouts and crash diets? What if you could use one program for all of your health and weight loss needs? Noom is here to help. Noom knows that getting in shape isn't just about losing weight. It's about building healthier habits and feeling better about yourself. Whether your goal is finally getting into those genes, practicing more self-care, or like me, more stamina to keep up with your busy schedule. Noom helps you build a strategy that's tailored to your goals. This is not a diet. It's a healthy lifestyle. Noom's program is based on personalized habit-changing solutions that help you learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. And it's easy to get started. I just downloaded the app, answered a few questions about myself, my habits, and my goals, and in just 10 minutes, I had identified my big picture goal and was on my way. It's like having a trainer, a nutritionist, and a coach all in one app. Noom is different because rather than focusing solely on food, this program is based on a cognitive behavioral approach. Using psychology, Noom teaches us why we do the things we do and arms us with the tools to break the bad habits and replace them with better ones. No food is good, bad, or off limits. Noom just teaches moderation and helps you stick with it and can be used with whatever diet you're trying to stick to. And Noom knows that we sometimes get off track, but the app doesn't shame you. It just gives you tips to help you get back on track tomorrow. Small steps make big progress. Take your first step and sign up for your trial today at noom.com mm. That's n-o-o-m dot mm. What do you have to lose? Sign up at noom.com mm. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, The Mystery of Room 1046. On Wednesday, January 2nd, 1935, at 1.20 p.m., a well-dressed young man, wearing a black overcoat, carrying no luggage, checked in to one of the 450 rooms at the President Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. The young man appeared to be between 20 and 35 years old, stood around six feet tall, and had a large scar on his scalp, just visible under his dark brown hair, combed over a distinct cauliflower ear. He registered as Roland T. Owen, from Los Angeles, and requested an interior room with no windows to the street. Owen was given a room on the 10th floor, and bellboy Randolph Probst escorted him to room 1046. 
As he led the mysterious Mr. Owen to his room, Owen remarked to Probst that he had recently been staying at the nearby Mirbach Hotel, and that at five dollars a night, the prices were far too high. The two dollar per night charged by the President Hotel was far more reasonable. When they reached room 1046, Probst unlocked the door and handed the key to Owen. The young man looked over the room, entered the bathroom, and took from his pocket the only personal items that he brought with him. A hairbrush, a comb, and a tube of toothpaste, and placed them on the sink. Though strange, nothing seemed suspicious about Roland T. Owen. Until around 2 p.m., when the cleaning lady, Mary Soapdick, reached room 1046 during her rounds, she knocked on the door and a voice said, Come in. When she entered the small room, she found Owen sitting in the dark with the shades drawn next to a single lamp which dimly lit the space. As Mary finished servicing the room, Owen told her, Leave the door unlocked. My friend is about to visit very soon. He was either worried about something or afraid, she later remarked. He always wanted to kind of keep in the dark. Soptik came back to room 1046 a few hours later to deliver fresh towels. Owen was in his bed, laying there fully dressed, a note was on the desk. It read, Dawn, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. The next day at 10.30 a.m., when Mary again returned to 10.46, the door was locked from the outside. Mary assumed that Owen must have locked the door on his way out. She used her passkey which opened every door in the hotel and entered the room to clean. But much to Mary's surprise, Owen was there, sitting alone in the darkness of the room. As Mary went about her cleaning, Owen received a phone call. No, Don, I don't want to eat, he said. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. No, I'm not hungry. Owen hung up the phone. Owen and Mary then made small talk as she finished cleaning the room, and Mary left to go about her rounds. Later that afternoon, at around 4 p.m., Mary returned to room 1046 to replace the towels. As Mary approached the door, she heard two men talking. She knocked. A husky, rough voice responded. Who is it? Mary replied that she was the maid and that she had come to deliver fresh towels, but she was cut short. We don't need any, the rough voice replied. Despite knowing that the room was out of towels since she herself had taken them that morning, 
Mary left. At 6 p.m., Jean Owen, unrelated to Roland T. Owen, checked into the hotel. She had been shopping in downtown that day and was overcome by nausea, feeling too ill to drive home, and decided to check in to the president and rest for the night. The receptionist checked her in to room 1048, next door to Roland Owen. Jean called her boyfriend to let him know her plans for the evening. At 9 p.m., he came to the hotel to check on Jean, visited her for a few hours, and left. Around this same time, across town, Robert Lane was leaving work at the Kansas City Water Department after his shift ended at 11 p.m. As Lane turned off of Main Street and onto 13th, he saw a man running alongside the road wearing nothing but an undershirt, pants, and shoes. A strange sight on a cold January night in Kansas City, as the temperature that night would have been around 33 degrees. The man began waving his arms, trying to flag down Lane's car. He pulled over and picked him up. The frantic man got into the back seat of the car, apologizing to Lane, saying that he thought it was a taxi and wondered if he might be able to take him to a place where it would be possible to find a cab. Lane noticed that the man who was staring out the window had a cut on his forearm and said, You look like you've had it bad. The man mumbled, I'll kill that tomorrow. The expletive that the man used was frustratingly subsequently redacted from all reports, eliminating the possibility of gleaning any clues from this crucial statement. Lane drove on. But when the strange passenger spotted a cab, he jumped out of the car and took off. Back in room 1048, Jean Owen was having trouble sleeping. It was midnight, and she was being kept awake by yelling that sounded like it was coming from room 1046. I heard a lot of noise which sounded like it was on the same floor and consisted largely of men and women talking loudly and cursing, Jean later recalled. When the noise continued, I was about to call the desk, but I decided not to. There was reportedly a party going on that night in room 1055. The guest in room 1048 may have mistaken where the voices she heard were coming from. The elevator operator, Charles Blocker, who was working the night shift, had already taken several people up to the party that night. But as the night quieted down sometime after 1 a.m., Blocker recalled taking a familiar woman with dark hair up to the 10th floor. In his statement to police, Charles Blocker said, I took a woman that I recognized as being one who frequents the hotel with different men in different rooms. 
It is my impression from this woman's actions that she is a commercial woman. I took her to the 10th floor and she made inquiries for room 1026. About five minutes after this, I received a signal to come back to the 10th floor. Upon arriving there, met this same woman. She wondered why he wasn't in his room because he had called her and had always been very prompt with his appointments. And she wondered whether he might be in room 1024 because the light was on in there. She remained about 30 or 40 minutes. Then I received a signal to go back up to the 10th floor. I went back and this same woman appeared there and she came down on the elevator at the lobby. About an hour later, she returned in company with a man and I took them to the ninth floor. I later received a signal to go to the ninth floor at about 4.15 a.m. And this same woman came down from the ninth floor and left the hotel. In a period of about 15 minutes later, the man came down the elevator from the ninth floor complaining that he couldn't sleep and was going out for a while. Blocker described the man as standing about five foot six inches tall, slender, and around 135 pounds, wearing a light brown coat, brown hat, and brown shoes. The woman was about the same size and wore a coat of black Hudson seal. The next morning around 7 a.m. on January 4th, the hotel switchboard operator noticed that the phone in room 1046 had been off the hook for some time, and upon checking the logs, noticed that no calls had come in or gone out from the room. She sent the bellboy Probst up to room 1046. The door was again locked, and the Do Not Disturb sign was hanging from the knob. After knocking on the door several times, Probst heard a deep voice. Come in, it said. Turn on the lights. But Probst had forgotten his passkey. Frustrated, the bellboy decided to leave and shouted through the door, Put the phone back on the hook and returned downstairs. But at 8.30 a.m., about an hour later, the phone in room 1046 was still off the hook. This time, another bellboy, Harold Pike, was sent upstairs with a key to place the phone in room 1046 back on the receiver. After the bellboy knocked and heard no reply, he unlocked and opened the door. Owen was there, laying naked in the bed, seemingly passed out drunk under the sheets, which appeared to have dark marks all over them. The telephone stand was knocked over. The bellboy placed the phone back on the stand and left the room. But just a few hours later, around 10.45 a.m., the phone in 1046 was again off the receiver. So the original bellboy Probst went back upstairs to Owen's room. When he opened the door, he was met with a horrific scene. 
when I entered the room. This man was within two feet of the door on his hands and elbows, holding his head in his hands, Probst later told police. I noticed blood on his head. Then I turned the lights on. I looked around and saw blood on the walls, on the bed, and in the bathroom. This frightened me and I immediately left the room and went downstairs. The bellboy rushed downstairs and told the hotel assistant manager what he saw. They called the authorities, and around 20 minutes later, police and detectives arrived at the hotel, followed shortly by a doctor. As they examined Owen's extensive injuries, they found that he had been tied around his neck, ankles, and wrists with a tight cord. He appeared to have been tortured. Owen had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest so violently that there was even blood splatter on the ceiling. His skull was fractured, his neck was bruised from strangulation, and one of his chest wounds showed that the knife had pierced his lung. But Owen was still alive and conscious. A detective on the scene asked Owen who had done this to him. Nobody, Owen responded. I slipped and hit my head on the tub. After this brief exchange, Owen lost consciousness and slipped into a coma as he was rushed to the hospital. According to a doctor, the injuries on Owen's body had been sustained six to seven hours before he was finally discovered. It was a strange case for the Kansas City Police Department. Whoever attacked Owen had taken almost everything from the room. There were no towels or items of clothing and no weapon. The only things they found were a necktie label, a hairpin, a cigarette, and a closed bottle of sulfuric acid. The only fingerprints found by police were on the telephone and appeared to belong to a woman. Just after midnight on January 5th, 1935, Roland T. Owen died in the hospital. But who was Roland T. Owen? When investigators contacted the authorities in Los Angeles, they found no record of a Roland T. Owen in the city. Investigators began to suspect that this was not the victim's real name, so they placed the man's body in a funeral home for viewing with the hope that someone may come and identify him. As the story hit the newspapers, people began contacting the Kansas City authorities to come and see if their missing loved one might be the man now lying in the funeral home. But of the almost 300 people who came to view the body, only one man recognized him. Robert Lane identified Owen as the man that he had picked up in his car along the road just a few nights prior. He told his story to police, who dismissed it, believing that if Owen had re-entered the hotel in the condition described by Lane, someone at the hotel would have noticed 
The investigation then switched its focus to determining whether any of the other hotels in the area recognized the man and to the only other name they had, Dawn. The hotels did recognize the man. Owen had occupied many hotel rooms recently, but each knew the mysterious guest by a different name. The staff of the nearby Mulbach Hotel, which Owen had complained was too expensive, knew the man as Eugene K. Scott of Los Angeles. Eugene had rented a room for a single night and, like Owen, specifically requested a room with no windows. The St. Regis Hotel knew him as Duncan Ogletree and also claimed that he shared the room with a man named Donald Kelso. Each time police received a new name, they checked with the Los Angeles Police Department. Each time, they turned up no matches. Investigators could not locate anyone by the name of Donald Kelso either. Nor did they have any leads on the identity of the woman whose fingerprints may match the ones found on the telephone. Some speculated that this murder must be the result of some sort of love triangle. But why wouldn't Owen tell the police who attacked him? Perhaps he was trying to protect someone. For months, police followed lead after lead, all dead ends, and the case grew colder and colder. In March, with no identity and no one to claim the body, authorities announced that they planned to finally bury Owen in an unmarked grave in a potter's field. When news of the burial plans hit the papers, the funeral home received a phone call from an unidentified man offering to pay for a proper burial and requesting that Owen be laid to rest in Kansas City's Memorial Park Cemetery. The anonymous caller reportedly added, Then he will be near my sister. Like the funeral home, a local florist also received a strange call. A man phoned to order 13 American Beauty roses to be delivered to the Owen funeral. I'm doing this for my sister, the man said. On March 23, 1935, money bundled in a newspaper was delivered by a courier to cover the funeral expenses. The money for the flowers arrived in an envelope, with the handwriting obscured by being written in block capital letters using a ruler. On the 26th of March, the roses were delivered to Owen's funeral service, along with a card which was also found in the envelope containing the anonymous payment. The card with the flowers read, Love Forever, Louise. The only people in attendance that day at the man known as Owen's funeral were the detectives working on the case. For several days after the service, 
undercover police cased the gravesite, dressed as gravediggers, in the hopes that someone might visit Owen's grave. But no one came. The case again went cold, and over time, fell out of the papers. Over a year passed. And in the fall of 1936, a friend of a woman named Ruby Ogletree read an article in an old issue of a popular magazine called American Weekly, which chronicled the Owen case. When Ruby Ogletree saw the magazine, she recognized Owen as her missing son, who had left Birmingham, Alabama in April of 1934. His name was Artemis Ogletree. In the early days after her son had left, Ruby and Artemis had kept in touch regularly. But eventually, the communication had stopped. Artemis had intended to travel to California, but in the spring of 1935, after Owen's death in room 1046, Ruby began receiving strange typewritten letters from various cities around the country. The first from Chicago, then another from New York saying that he would soon be traveling to Europe. But Artemis, Ruby said, didn't know how to use a typewriter. And the language in the letters was unlike her son. It was slangy and unfamiliar to Ruby Ogletree. In August of 1935, Ruby Ogletree received a phone call from a man claiming to be a friend of her son. The man said that his name was Jordan and told Ruby fantastical stories about her son's travels and adventures. Like how Artemis had lost his thumb in a bar brawl saving Jordan's life, and that this was the reason why Artemis hadn't been able to write. When Ruby Ogletree questioned the man's story, he promptly hung up. Ruby, who was already worried, became suspicious after the strange telephone call and decided to contact the new director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, asking him to investigate the matter. But in November, when Ruby Ogletree saw the American Weekly article, her suspicions were sadly confirmed. She contacted the Kansas City police and finally identified Owen's body as that of her son, Artemis Ogletree. Ruby explained to the police that the distinct scar on the side of the young man's head had been from an accident that he had as a child where he was burned. She told them of his plans to go to California and how she'd lost track of him in 1934, started receiving strange typewritten letters, and about the phone call from the man calling himself Jordan. She told them how worried she'd been for her son because Artemis Ogletree was just 17 years old. The name on the headstone in Memorial Park was changed from Roland T. Owen to Artemis Ogletree. And the case of what happened in room 1046 went cold for good. 
In the early 2000s, Dr. John Horner, who penned an exhaustive account of the mysterious case of Room 1046 for the Kansas City Public Library, received an out-of-state phone call about Artemis Ogletree. The caller claimed to have found a box of newspaper clippings about the case in a deceased elderly person's belongings. And there was something else in the box, something that had been referenced in the newspaper articles. But the caller refused to say what it was. In 2003, the case of Room 1046 was reopened. It remains unsolved. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.